0: Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at bmb21. Now on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right. Welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. My guest today is Phil Andrews, creators of Kathy's Ark. If you haven't listened to part one where Phil and I talked, I highly recommend giving it a listen. Um, Super interesting stuff. But Kathy's Ark is the de facto source of information for me on all the Ark funds. Um, So much interesting trade data and timeline of ownership and a bunch of other interesting stuff. You should check out com as well as the, the trading floor, a uh, great area for discussion. But Phil, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ben. Really appreciate it. It's good to be back.
0: Definitely <laughs> good to have you again. I, I figured we could kick off by talking a little bit about the mission of Kathy's Arc and why you built it in the first place. So why does Kathy's Arc exist and what role does it play, both for Arc and investors in the funds? Sure. Sure.
1: Um, that's a it's a good question. And it's evolved because when it started out, it was just my own little project of uh, you know keeping track of the funds. When I noticed what Arc was doing, having followed Tesla and then stumbling into Kathy Wood, it was kind of an aha moment of like, oh, there's this person that's kind of turning my head to the technology that is just on around the corner, as opposed to, you know, browsing through Wikipedia emerging technologies lists. And so when I started building Kathy's ARC, it was just to satisfy my own interest of what they're doing and what I should be looking at. And then I put the site up and it started to gather a lot of attention. But really what I has morphed into over the past about eight months really since last August is a place for people to come and collaborate and talk about all of the things that are going on, not just with ARC but with technology in general. So the trading floor has become the centerpiece of of Kathy's ARC, which is this uh, big forum. Uh, thousands of members, and we all talk and collaborate about all the things that are going on, both with ARC, of course, but with the individual companies. We share information and news and ideas. And the role that it plays, just as a, as a quick summary, is ARK is, has their own world to deal with and analysis and trading and making the funds work and everything. They can't satisfy all of the demand from their investors and people that are out there that have questions and want to talk about this stuff. They just can't answer that stuff. And I've noticed that the trading floor has become a place for people that are interested in ARC to come and ask those questions and talk. And so the community can help answer them. So I think that Kathy's ARC has become the home of answering all of the stuff that ARC can't. And I say that with like, we can't answer, we don't speak for ARC. and like, of course, we don't know everything that ARC is doing, but people can come and ask questions and get satisfactory answers um, you know, within a reasonable timeframe that they otherwise couldn't. I think that that's the role that we, we play. And ARC can't talk about a lot of the stuff that they do due to financial regulations. So we can speculate and have conversations around it, which is uh, a great outlet for many of us.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. It's a really strong community. I, I've been in there posting about Nintendo. I've had some great conversations with people who have chimed in, agreements, disagreements, but um, all things on the trading floor. I just think there's a wide range of opinions represented. Um, so we last talked December 23rd, and a ton of things have changed since then. I think the market has perhaps rotated away a bit from tech after tech was the trade that was working through most of 2020. Um, Arc has had to deal with this. You know, They've had to manage the portfolio, um, and make sure they're well-positioned for investors. Um, So I want to get your thoughts on what has changed since December and what ARC has done over that time period.
1: Uh, great question, as usual. So what has changed since that period of time? Well, tech was on a, a rocket ship for all of 2020. Of course, it was the best returning section of the entire market. So I think what had happened over that point in time is that tech got overheated. I mean, it really just became overvalued as trades tend to do. And there was, we were due for a correction. And that correction was, you could see it coming, but the thing that really tipped it over was rates starting to rise. That was kind of the, the wind that blew the hay off the stack and uh, started the, top, the tech sector tumbling, which is fine. I mean, corrections are entirely healthy. So that has kicked up the whole uh, inflation and growth versus value conversation, but the way that our candles, all of that, and you could see it in the trades. If you, if you look at their trades every day and I write a full post about the trades every day. So I have a front row seat is they will scale into big cap names, um, as a defensive mechanism. And then as a top comes, once it falls, they will full out rotation out of a lot of those big tech names and into their higher conviction names that, um, that have tumbled forty or fifty percent over that period of time, and you saw it; it was perfect. There was a couple of weeks where the daily digest that I send out was just—you know, this is the, all of the sales that happened. They were almost perfect position swaps for all of these stocks that were down forty percent. And here's why. And um, so we saw for two weeks trade sheets of you know sixty stocks or sixty trades a day, fifty trades a day. It was just so much action. And it's what Kathy said she will always do: is we're going to when there's a correction. We're gonna sell our lower conviction names and we're gonna buy the beaten down socks. And we saw her live up to her word. That's how they do it. And it is a master stroke, really. I think, of course, being a fan because the lower conviction names are where you get the, the big outsized gains from. Or, I'm sorry, the smaller names, higher conviction names are where you get the outsized gains from.
0: That's super interesting. So I guess during this most recent drawdown, what are some examples of trades you've seen that have evidenced that philosophy? of Cathie Wood kind of moving to higher conviction?
1: We saw them close out positions in Google, Apple, Amazon, and uh, Rockwell Automation in the big names that were kind of slow moving. And we saw them scale into a lot of smaller names like Berkeley Lights. Um, we saw them scale into names like Blade, and which is trading under EXPC right now we saw them rotate out of those big cap names and into some of their other larger cap names, but that had gotten just totally rocked, like Roku, even Tesla. I mean, there were multiple days where they bought Tesla and they bought Square. So um, when you can get those kind of names at a discount, they'll take it. They'll take it every single time. It's uh, it's like clockwork.
0: Yeah, that, that's, philosophy makes a lot of sense and the consistency also, I think. Yeah, you know, I own Arc, and I think I, I, I like that, the fact that, you know, when the market's going down, um, they're they're trading the higher conviction ones that uh, they've been fairly consistent saying those are the, the names they want to buy. What's interesting is there are a lot of Arc bears that come out of the woodwork, um, and you know we talked a little bit beforehand, but Edwin Dorsey I think is, has been the leader in his newsletter, the Bear Cave, um, wrote a pretty critical piece about Arc, um, and I, I think some of his thesis here boils down to the fact that he thinks a lot of the smaller cap names that Arc owns aren't very liquid in a case where they have to sell down, um, potentially they own so much of the stock, it would be difficult for them to sell down the position without moving uh, the names a significant amount. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, and you wrote a bit about this in your blog post, and I recommend people read it. Um, but can you talk a little bit about um, what his thoughts are and how you respond to them, as well as the general bear case against ARC right now?
1: Sure. There are bears coming out of the woodwork left and right. And I think the context of... The story is important because a scary story of panic is an easy story to sell, and it's a fun story to tell. I think that what we have seen is throwing around words that really grab attention by people that want to uh, want to panic. If you if you look at the if you look at the Weather Channel website, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but if you look at the Weather Channel website you'll see all of the headlines are super negative. They're incredibly negative. You know, uh, hurricane rolling through, a truck smashes into something, it's so negative and you're really drawn to click on them. And so I think a lot of these bear cases are uh, conceived out of the idea that people will click on it and it is interesting and I will read it too. Like, of course I'm gonna read that. What's the bear case? Is it gonna crash? Let me know, cause I need to know that information. So I think a lot of the context is around that. And we see words being thrown around like systemic and liquidity crisis and illiquidity. And if we go back to what many people have front and center as a systemic liquidity crisis, it was the 2009 financial crash. And so I think it's very easy to connect those two in people's minds and pull panic into your blog or into your tweet thread or whatever it happens to be. It's an easy sell. And I think that's a big part of the context for it um also the what i have noticed from a lot of the bear thesis is that they tend to draw a line from hating tesla first and then hating arc there's the there's the tweet thread that you you uh sent me i almost responded to it last night i thought about commenting on it but i decided i was going to stay out of those waters at this point in time um i don't know if it's a real person guy's name i guess. I guess I'll say it, but it's, I think his name is Carlo Dossi. And he goes mm-hmm. and he talks about the, he goes through essentially the same thing that Edwin Dorsey did and does it a little bit different with correlation risk and talks about uh, the cues being a better investment and all of this, all of these different things. Um, and when I went, I went and I read his entire Twitter history. He joined Twitter last January, but didn't start posting until this year. And he really started to like, make a name for himself when he posted an anti-Tesla thread in the beginning of February. That was his first. And so we see these bears come out. He did that one. And then he did a central bank. The central bank is in such chaos that the only way for the market to correct itself is for it to diverge and then absolutely crash. And it's going to be a huge catastrophe. And they just did this arc one. So I see these patterns in the naysayers, in that that's just what they do. And it's a great story to tell. This is why we go to the movies. So that's the context for it. Now, the actual technicals behind the scenes, I think, tell a little bit of a different story. There are about 27 companies within the ARC family, where combined with their Japanese sister fund, uh, Nikko, they own about 25% of the company. Now, what people fail to mention is that these companies are all perfectly liquid. They have The vast majority of them, of the shares that they have available, outstanding shares, over 90% of them are floated. Only one of them has a float of less than 50%. It's about 42%. So these are highly liquid companies. And you can go all the way down the options chain to see, or you can go all the way down to the options chain to see that these companies even have pretty liquid options markets. So the concept that these companies are illiquid or that some drawdown is going to make it so that Arc can't get out if they need to get out. To me, smells of a misunderstanding of what would potentially lead to a liquidity crisis. And I think any liquidity crisis could happen with Arc funds. It's going to happen with many funds. It would have to be a market-wide meltdown. It's not like Mark ARK itself just on a random day is going to face a liquidity problem. The mutual funds of the old days, they really did trade in very illiquid instruments that they couldn't find a market for. Um, they trade on dark markets or on swaps. And so this is an ETF that trades in fully functioning public equities uh, that that are liquid. So I don't see an issue with getting in and out of it. Yeah,
0: it's it's a super sorry, interesting point. I mean, I, I think... What surprised me is Wall Street Journal was kind of among the sources that were uh, coming up with this narrative. And I think you did a good job responding to them. But I I just want to reiterate their points. So Jason Zweig at WSJ writes, uh, ARK has 43.5% of their assets under management in companies where they own 10% or more of the companies. So again, uh, kind of parroting this narrative of they have a substantial portion of their assets in companies where they own um, a large percentage. So you did a good job responding to this, but yeah, if you could talk about some of the reasons why that statement isn't particularly accurate, and I think facts it also is another one where perhaps they need to get their facts rates too.
1: Sure. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Uh, that night, <clears throat> I commented on Edwin Dorsey's post. Um, I forget what I, what I had mentioned, but within two, five minutes, he had direct messaged me on Twitter and we started a conversation. We talked for about half hour, 45 minutes. Um, just chatting back and forth about his thesis and you know why I didn't think it was a problem. And then he mentioned that his, his <clears throat> whole thesis was based around this Wall Street Journal article that said that 40%, um, I can't remember the number, actually 43 and a half percent, 10. What is the number? Do you remember the number off the top of your head? Yep. Yeah,
0: so I got it in front of me. So it's 43 and a half percent of ARC's assets. So I think they have about 60 billion in assets under management right now. Um, are in companies where they own a 10th or more of the company.
1: Right. Yes, exactly. That was the number that was in the Wall Street Journal. And this is where I was kind of happy to have Kathy Zark available to me. Um, I was like, that just doesn't seem right to me. Let me pull up all the holdings and go and just like do a quick sanity check to make sure that that's not the case. Because I think that that would be too much. I would agree that that would be a little bit of a cause for concern. And so if that's the case, let's find out. Um, And when I started looking through the numbers, I was just like, I don't think that that's right. I, I don't have the time to go through the math right now, but I don't think that's right. Edwin, let me take a look at it and let's chat again tomorrow. he was like, yep, cool, no problem, let's chat. And Edwin was very cool. He's a good guy from what I could tell. I don't think he was trying to sink the ship or, or do something negative. I think that he's just curious and trying to decide whether this was a problem. We had good uh, conversation. I've got I harbor no hard feelings towards Edwin at all. Um, But I couldn't go to bed. I was like, I got to figure this out. So I pulled the the holding straight off the ARC website so that it wasn't tainted by Kathy's ARC and the data that I have. And then I got the shares outstanding from value finance. I consolidated all of the data in a spreadsheet, showed my work and showed that the actual number is about 18.3% of assets are in companies where they own 10% or more of the actual shares. And so the number, the critical number where these theory, this theory was based on was entirely debunked, in my opinion, or at least it should be greatly reduced. I posted this and Edwin didn't respond. Jason's week did come back over the weekend and he said, thanks for chiming in, but he didn't really give any type of retraction. He's like, oh, these numbers change all the time. And, you know, this is kind of what it looks like right now. And I was like, yeah, well... This is kind of a big article and you published it. It went in the print version too. It was the paper version that it got printed in. So uh, this is a pretty big article against ARC. So there was no retraction, but the numbers stand. And I I think that the the math speaks for itself in terms of uh, what people were actually saying was the case and what is actually the case. And to just expound on that a little bit, I don't understand why people think that with all of the attention that is being focused on ARC right now, that there is something hiding under the rug that's just going to pop out and like break the Campbell's back. This isn't to go back to the financial crisis. Everyone is watching this. No one was watching the mortgage bond industry, and that's why it kind of pulled down the system, right? So, uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Uh, attention is the best disinfectant. So there's so much attention here. It's hard for me to think that there's some. Uh, monster lurking in a closet
0: yep yeah let me push back and and play the role of uh the bears a bit in this conversation so sure. okay. i mean all, all of that granted and i think your post makes perfect sense um that number that was in wall street journal does appear to be overstated but it is true that ARC has grown uh, AUM a significant amount. So I think it's about ten to to sixty billion uh, for the beginning of 2020 to now, and that's happened because they've been enormously successful. Um, their success has caused people to want to invest. So it's completely deserved. Um, all that said, you know, it's when you're larger, it's harder to do the same things as when you're really small. And the thing that stands out the most is ARC does invest in some smaller cap companies and, and does own a significant percentage of the stock in some of those companies. Not nearly as much as some of the bears are claiming, but, but it's still something you get to think about. Um, and of course, when they think about new opportunities, it becomes perhaps more uh, a thing you have to think about where if you're gonna invest in a small cap name, it's gonna be harder to trade in now the stock. So I guess my question to you is, do you think it's gonna be harder for ARC to be successful going forward, um, being six times as big on an AUM perspective as they were before?
1: I think the answer to that has to be yes. The logical answer has to be yes, that um, you get outsized returns from finding you know, hidden gems that people really aren't paying attention to or you know, having enough knowledge about it to know that the addressable market hasn't been realized in the share price. And I think that that's going to be harder and harder for ARK the more assets you have under management. The thing that they have going for them, and, and you have to believe them if you want to believe this, is that. If they're right about the technologies that they are investing and that they are focused on very specifically, then it should be less hard than you would think, given the assets under management. If they are right in their thesis on the technological convictions, it shouldn't be difficult for them to outperform the market and the broader indexes and many other ETFs and funds. Um, That's I think the answer to your question is yes, but uh, still possible. Sure, For sure, still possible.
0: Definitely. And I think it's important to point out like all the different ETFs, with different mandates. Um, do any strike you as having a larger total addressable market? So this problem would be less impactful perhaps for one of the funds than another. Is there, is there a particular fund you think can do well in spite of the growing size?
1: Yes. Um, I, do think, I do think that fund is probably ARCG because it is a genomics fund, but it's, large, it's big health. You know, it's, it's not just genomics. There's a huge health component in there, some large cap names and some very small cap names. And healthcare spending in the United States is one sixth of the economy. And that's just the United States. You know, There's the entire world. The United States is pushing healthcare forward for the entire global population. So I think that if you were going to bet on just one sector outperforming another over a long period of time, especially with a real technological evolution like genomics and proteomics, which will follow, the the sector to bet on would be healthcare. I think that would be the safest and smartest bet.
0: Yeah, super interesting. That actually does lead me to a question a number of the listeners had and uh, people who also are on the trading floor. So Teladoc is the number one holding in G, and I think is, is a large holding across the Arc funds. They've increased that position a huge amount over time. So just to give people perspective, um, ARK, I think combined, or this might have only just been in the main flagship fund, they own 800,000 shares in August 2020 of Teladoc. They own 7 million today. Um, and we're talking about purchases that are also pretty recent, so they've, they've been a buyer on March 3rd, 4th, 5th, 11th, and 12th. Uh, the growth of Teladoc is pretty stunning. Uh, so, so you talked a bit about this in, in part one uh, we recorded in December. Um, I guess everything you said then does that still hold true, or has anything changed in the thesis the last couple of months? And yeah, it'd be great if you could just kind of rehash um, some of your uh, your both thesis on Teladoc. on Teledoc. Yes,
1: Teledoc is not a company I follow too closely, but I think the it's just a general it's just a general play on the fact that it's easier to go to the doctor via your computer than it is to actually go in to the doctor physically. And with all sorts of direct to consumer testing and all sorts of at-home medical um, devices and uh, mobile medical devices, it's going to be easier and easier to not actually have to go to a physical location to go see a doctor. And Teledoc works in a variety of health industries that are that's not just, you know, your primary care physician. A lot of it's mental health. Um, they own a company called uh, they, they purchased Livongo. There are a number of different aspects of healthcare that are probably better in the telehealth capacity. And I think that the, the push for personalized medicine and genomics is going to benefit Teladoc more than it's going to benefit in-person uh, practices. So I wish, this is a company that I haven't actually done a full deep dive on um, but that's my take on Teladoc. That is my thesis is that it's, it's going to benefit from telehealth and it's going to benefit from the fact that direct-to-consumer medicine and personalized medicine is a giant tailwind coming right down the pike.
0: Yeah, but you definitely feel like getting more important, especially over the last year we just had. Um, are there any other uh, stocks in ArcG you think have particularly long runways in a large uh, total addressable market?
1: Well, yes, I do. Uh, of course, um, I am a holder of Tesla and Square, but I think that those are probably less interesting because everybody knows them right now. They're their bull cases, um, even though there are some very interesting ones for Square around NFTs. But we'll leave that for another time. The one that I have focused on recently is um, Berkeley Lights. And the genomic sector to me is the most interesting because it's the hardest to understand. It's very difficult to understand how this plays into the world in which we currently live, because we have no reference point. We haven't done this before. Most people haven't had a conversation about what it means to be able to sequence their genome or what it's going to mean to the current pipeline of medical practice that is happening now, or how you even develop therapies around that stuff. But... What Berkeley Lights does is they are a workflow company that allows researchers and labs, uh, biopharma, antibody discovery, uh, synthetic biology. If you really want to understand how a therapy works, or you know what kind of antibody. Uh, therapy to make, you need to look at an individual cell and how it responds to its environment and when other things are introduced to its environment. And so what Berkeley Lights does is it speeds up the current workflow that uh, researchers used to do that by a factor of, it's almost a hundred. So the, it's, it's, between, it's between 10 and 100, depending on what you're trying to do. So what would take four to five months before uh, Berkeley lights can now do in five hours to five days. So what they are able to do is just compress the time to discover different medical treatments and therapies into such a small amount of time. And it's all automated that the total addressable market for them is so big and uh, is going to continue to grow with the, you know, the continued push for genomic medicine and, uh, synthetic biology, it's not just healthcare either. You're, you're going to use, or companies are going to use Berkeley Lights for all sorts of things for uh, plants, for, uh, you know, you're going to use it. I was listening to somebody, David Friedberg, talk about, you know, bioengineering where, you know, algae is going to build stuff for us. And I think that that's probably correct in the long term. And Berkeley Lights will be a pick and shovel play on that kind of thing. You're going to want to see the cells, which cells you should use, culture, and then, you know, turn into something else. So, Berkeley lights takes what used to be a very painful process of putting things in, you know, a little tube and then culturing it and waiting and then doing all this stuff manually and just compresses it down into such a small amount of time that it's going to be pretty revolutionary. And they don't have um, a real competitor. And even better than that, like this is a working company. They're making money. They've proved out the concept. They've placed 75 machines. There's, it's not it's, you know, it's commercially available at this point in time. It's just a matter of, of distribute distribution.
0: Yeah. Something like that. You definitely would be happy to hold for a decade, uh, irrespective yes. of how Arc does yeah. or any short-term discussion about ARK. Yeah, Thinking about that, I, I think yeah, there could be a situation uh, near term or longer term where Arc does have these types of extended sell-offs um, just re- as a result of having so much AUM and so many arbitragers being in the market. Um, so Berkeley Light's definitely one I'm gonna circle. Um, in the in the case of a big drawdown, say we saw ARC go down uh, like 20, 30%. Um, are there any individual stocks you think would sell off perhaps more than 20 to 30 percent in that case? Um, and in the ARC ETFs, you'd be interested in buying individually as opposed to just buying more of the ARC ETFs themselves?
1: I think we've seen that. I think we've seen that over the last month. We've seen companies just you know plummet 30, 40 or 50 percent. Whether or not that's just Ark's doing, and I don't think that it is. It's you know, it's a combination of tech selling off in addition to um, in addition to the Ark funds. But yes, there are a number of companies in that space, and I think we're looking at them right now. Berkeley likes one of them. It was overvalued. I would agree. It went from it was trading at like one fifteen. It trades at about fifty now. So you can get it. Pacific Biosciences is the exact same way. Um, If I pull up the list, we would be looking at, uh, Schrodinger is another one. There is uh, 10X genomics is probably not as interesting at this point in time, but um, yeah, Invitae plummeted from its peak of 60 down to almost 30 at one point in time. Uh, all of the companies and the ones that you're like, if you really want to go in your portfolio and sit on something for 10 years on beaten down names that could return a huge amount is the ones that don't have revenue right now. They're getting the work, they're getting hit the hardest, you know, the CRISPRs, the fate therapeutics. um, Those are the ones where everyone is like, well, if we're selling off tech and we are rotating into, you know, more of a value environment, I can't have a company that's not producing revenue in my portfolio. So if you're looking for a really, um, uh, really beaten down name those those are the ones I look for go to go to your filter and put revenue zero
0: definitely that, yeah that, that would make sense let me ask you like a more philosophical trading question so it does seem like in these drawdown situations ARC is sometimes a foreseller. seller and for that reason depending on how much of the stock it owns it, some stocks in the portfolio sell off more than others um, when it comes to situations like that where you have a lot of bargains a lot of things you are deeply that are deeply discounted to intrinsic value depending on how you look at it Um, How do you think about buying the ARK ETFs versus buying individual stocks? Because I think both are great, um, but it does seem like we're getting to a point where maybe there's more opportunity in buying the ARK holdings and the individual names themselves, as opposed to buying the ETFs.
1: Yes. The philosophy that I would have there is different for different people. If you can't pay the market day in and day out, or more importantly, you don't want to pay attention to the market day in, day out. If it's not something that you're like, hey, what is, you know, what's Lending tree doing that I am so excited about and I'm gonna read through all their stuff. If that's not you, you should buy the ETFs. That's just a better play for you. If you are in the markets a lot, I do think that ARK gives a really nice look. There's 160 some odd companies in the portfolio. And it's essentially them saying like, hey, this is a really nice list for you to pick from if you wanted to filter down into something that has high growth potential. And there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with picking names out of the actual portfolios. That's how I, that's what I do. I actually invest in individual names that I follow very closely and that I have high conviction on. It's just my style, it's just what I like to do. Um, And I think that you can probably find outsized returns there, as long as you're careful and you do pay attention, um, because you know, as we, uh, as I was, you know, getting ready for this thing, I was thinking about the growth to value rotation, and I, I, as I don't think that it is a full growth to value rotation. Uh, maybe we will talk about that, but even if we don't, the environment that we are going into is going to be different than the one we were in last year, and I think that is only only means that you're going to have to be a little bit more selective with what companies you own. Everything's not going to go up, so. And I think that that makes sense if you're going to pick individual names out of the art portfolio. Some of them are going to way outperform others. I do think that that's the case. And so uh, owning individual names out of the art portfolio, as long as you're disciplined about it, could very well yield outsized returns. None of this is investment advice. Of course, do your own research. I'll
0: just say it now. Definitely. do I don't want to touch on ways that the Kathy's Ark website can help you do that research and help you screen uh, for certain names. But before we got to that, I don't want to lose sight of your point on the growth to value rotation that I think a lot of market commentators are talking about. You had a good post recently on the trading floor um, about how the fear of rising rates and inflation is driving a lot more of this rotation than you know investors going from growth names to value names. So I was hoping you could talk about that a bit because I, I think there is this widely held theory um, that growth names are just being dumped, and things with low PEs, uh, you know, high free cash flow yields are being bought. Um, so, explain why you think that isn't necessarily true.
1: Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily true. Well, just real quick, the inflation question is, you know, inflation tends to push money into equities. Period. It's an excellent inflation hedge. Uh, as so is real estate, and so is generally gold. Is I would consider probably I would say Bitcoin is probably your better uh, bet over gold at this point in time or another fixed supply crypto. But uh, inflation tends to push money into equities. So if you have money in any of them, it should help to beat inflation. But the idea that we're rotating strictly out of growth and into value doesn't seem to hold a lot of water. If you look at the broader market, we're seeing uh, value names be picked up that tend to be Reopening stocks tend to be financials on the back of rates and tend to be energy companies on the back of the rise in oil. It's not broad. Healthcare is just kind of meh, just kind of hanging out. There are so many high dividend names out there uh, that are great companies, high free cash flow that just aren't getting bought. So we're not seeing a full rotation from growth to value. We're seeing, I think we're seeing some very specific trades happening on the back of undercurrents within the market. And even if we do a growth to value rotation, it doesn't mean that growth is just dead and doesn't do anything. I think what that means is that you just have to be more selective in what growth stocks you're owning. Is Tesla a growth stock? It is a growth stock, but that doesn't mean it doesn't go up when there's a growth to value rotation. It's still a good company. Ultimately, instead of thinking about growth to value rotation, you should think about Okay, well if everything isn't going up on the back of, you know, this whole pandemic tailwind, then let me focus on the most the companies that are executing at their best right now if if I'm trying to make money in the short term.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, to think about some of the stocks that have caught a bid, I wouldn't call them value names at all. I mean, they're certainly quote reopening plays. Uh, That over the last year have added a ton of debt to the balance sheet, have issued a a bunch of equity and diluted shareholders in the process. Um, It's not like their free cash flow prospects have improved at all. So to me, that's not value. That's buying a worse company at 2019 prices um, on under the theory that reopening will get them back on track. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I think you have to look at. Are you you thinking about hotels here? Are you thinking, Think about, it, hotels thinking or... about hotels? I mean, uh, Dave & Buster's is one I followed for oh, yeah. uh, a long time as well that, you know, they issued Chapter 11, uh, Chapter 11 warning uh, to their shareholders and not much has materially changed. Obviously, they are reopening locations uh, for, for something like that to be trading close to 2019 multiples is insane to me. So, yes, I, I am thinking about hotels and kind of the reopening sector in general. Um, oh,
1: wow, yeah, it's been on a tear, You're right. Definitely. I mean, I plenty of
0: stocks like that. I mean, airlines too are another example where you know things that were on the verge of bankruptcy, and as to get out of that bankruptcy risk, they had to massively dilute shareholders, um, right back up to 2019 levels. So yeah, I'm right. I'm baffled by it. So my guess is good as yours as to what's actually happening with this rotation. Let's good get point. into a bit about um some of the new features you've added to Kathy's Ark and how they can be really helpful in the research process. So the the one th- I wanted to start with, which I think you've done a ton of great work on. Um, is the filters. So I, I've noticed now you can filter for short interest. Um, you can look at market cap, that um, you can look at any number of things. So talk a bit about the filters and how they might be helpful to someone trying to find um, interesting names in the ARC portfolios. Yes,
1: I think that this is going to be a big direction that Kathy's uh, ARC goes. The filters, one, um, really does help you narrow down things and you know win an argument if you need to argue with somebody about um, how much of a how much ARC owns of the company. Uh, but the, I think the one that I would point out is that there is uh, the return percent, um, which takes a look at, since we have last talked, this was a big fe- feature that I put out and there's now a filter for it. looks at the return percent and how much above the cost average that ARC has for a position, A company now trades at. So you could go in, you could hit, uh, what's the return percent for Tesla and RK and it's something like 865% or something like that. Like you can go in and see that for everything. You can see what companies are negative. So Zoom for instance is, they have taken a 20% hit on Zoom from their cost average. Uh, There are a number of companies that they're actually down on and it kind of gives you a good look at what companies are way up compared to what they bought at versus what companies are way down. And you can go into the uh, chart within each holdings with each page. So if you went to like RK and went to Tesla, you can see a pink dotted line that shows their cost average and how it changes over time with their different purchases. While this isn't a perfect rendition of total return, it's a good overview of where they sit in the position. Um, It doesn't take into account the sales and how much profit they've taken on. So not total return, but it gives you a good gist of where they are relative to what they might expect it to become. And yeah, in um, addition, uh, or go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. Okay. No,
0: no, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I was using it to take a peek at some of the worst performing names in, uh, in arc. And it's amazing, uh, that Berkeley lights actually is in there now Compugen and, uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but Organovo. um, uh, I think Organ- they're down Organovo, on 70% on that. Yeah
1: both Compugen and Organovo are two of their oldest holdings that go back to 2014. They have been holding those companies for the longest time. Organovo is about printing, uh, printing human tissues and organs. That's what that is. Like if you could print a kidney, that's what Organovo does, um, promising work, but obviously they've, you know, they've been holding that one for, for quite some time. Uh, Compugen is in the genomic se- sector, but yes, you can go in and see that stuff, exactly.
0: Yeah, interesting. They organovo they've had to sell down potentially because of uh, the price movement, but they are down to a significantly smaller amount of shares than they held originally. Um, anyway, so I wanted to make sure um, I didn't cut you off on filters. Anything else specifically that um, users should use to screen for interesting place?
1: I think the filters are great. Um, there, there's also a feature that I expect to be releasing next week as we get. Um, A little bit more granular with some of the data. When I write about all of this stuff, I have to go out and find this data. And so I end up like going into the website and thinking, well, I should just build this so that like everybody can come in and do this themselves. And we're uh, coming out pretty soon. uh, We're going to start compiling clinical trial data. And there's about 46 companies within the ARC ETFs that have FDA clinical trials in different stages and that make a huge difference to the company. So we're going to start monitoring the clinical trials, where they are, the updates on them. So that's going to be coming out within the next week or so. So it's not there yet, but I'm pretty excited to release that. Um, even just today, uh, Takeda Pharmaceutical announced that they had been approved to market something in Canada and the, the stock moved higher because of that. And if you had known that, you might've been able to trade it. So um, yeah. Just some some interesting stuff, and we'll get all data throughout time. There's a bunch of little things that are coming out. So
0: definitely, I'm I'm super excited for that. I can imagine for Archie, that's a super useful tool to have. Awesome. So also wanted to talk a little bit about timelines, which I think potentially since last time we talked is a net new feature. Um, I think it tells a really interesting story of how Arc has closed positions and taken on new positions over time. So maybe we could start with you know since December. Um, what has kind of struck you as is, is interesting in terms of positions ARC has both got rid of and then taken on?
1: I was very surprised that they took on DraftKings. I was, I didn't think that that was going to end up in here. And when I saw it, I was like, what in the world, DraftKings? Um, but over time in learning more and more about the company, I can I can see it now, and in the last webinar, one of their analysts, you know, expounded on their thesis of DraftKings, and so it did make sense. Like you, yeah, I played daily fantasy sports when it first came out, and I haven't in the last couple of years, but I get the appeal. It's a lot of fun, and so with sports betting, I get it. But you know, from a next generation tech perspective, I didn't quite see it, and so uh, I guess this is a you know a good spot to kind of talk on on DraftKings a little bit is that the, uh, what is one of the things that ARC likes, I think that this is the better way to think about the ARK ETFs. The ARK ETFs, they do focus on technology, but ultimately what they really want, they want the pure play. They want the pure play, the direct path to the technology, and they want vertical integration within their companies. Those are the two things that you can find very frequently within the companies that they hold. So, in the last webinar, uh, Nick Grouse, or Bruce, I'm going to mispronounce it. I haven't heard it said out loud, but it's G-R-O-U-S. You can find him on Twitter. Um, is They talked about DraftKings a little bit and their thesis behind it. And what he said is that DraftKings is a vertically integrated platform now. And I started thinking about that, like, what does that mean? And what it means is that DraftKings brought all of their technology in-house. So they don't have any third party that they rely on anymore to actually put together a betting system and different games and technology. So they bought a company that was a bet engine um, and a bet engine is a service that compiles odds and analytics and data and uh, comes up with the lines for different sports, you know, uh, fourth down and one. And the, uh, you know, what are the odds that the Patriots convert on fourth down or, You know what's the spread between the Bulls and the Knicks? That's what a bet engine does. It's it's not easy. It's really quite complicated. But all of the other sports books out there, online or not, they don't have their own bet engine. They rely on a third party to do that. And so when DraftKings went out and bought this company and the name of the company, I'm forgetting, they brought all that in-house, which makes them vertically integrated. They also brought their marketing in-house, but they can do all sorts of things. They can look at a player's profile and they can say, all right, this player bets like this and using a ton of AI and machine learning. They're kind of like this player and they're not betting right now, but due to the streaming service that we brought in house, they're watching this game and they would probably like this bet of, to go back to the Patriots analogy, it's fourth down and one. uh, The Patriots are on the 40 yard line. You know what an interesting bet would be is if uh, the Patriots are going to run a quarterback sneak and go for it on fourth down. That's an interesting bet. Well, a bet engine that's a third party probably doesn't have that. So DraftKings can create it on the fly and offer it to the customer. So by being able to have complete control over the product, they can offer so many more things that other services can't. It's not to say that another company can't go out and own a bet engine or bring streaming into their platform, but DraftKings is the one that's doing it right now. They are do seem to be the leader in multiple different areas Uh, That's just one example. But when we look at it from a vertical integration standpoint, I look at it as bring the bet engine in-house. They brought streaming within the app. If they can get streaming of major sports and actually make DraftKings the place where you go to watch certain things, their market to offer bets to different people is going to increase drastically. So uh, that that surprised me when it came in. This is where I'm at now. It's not as surprising.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So I own a good amount of Penn National Gaming. So I I suppose I own DraftKings competitor. Um, One thing I was thinking about, as as I read your notes um, on this webinar, which are definitely worth going through. um, So I I think the Penn National Gaming perspective on this, especially with Barstool, is that users want a personal connection um, to gambling, as opposed to having this general sports book uh, that they can place bets on. So what you're saying makes sense that something more personalized that Knows you're a Patriots fan. Knows you enjoy fourth and one situations. Know that's how you like to bet. Um, but can offer you something more background in, in your opinion on the question. Says from Twitter, um, your opinion on BioNano Genomics. That ticker symbol BNGO versus specific Biosciences. Biosci- that ticker symbol B-P-A-C-B. Yes.
1: I am going to essentially extract what Simon Barnett from ARC has spoken to on this. There's a huge clamor around biogenomics back in, I think it was January uh, versus Pacific Biosciences and biogenomics got like just huge volume and people were talking up all over YouTube and Reddit and everything. And everybody was like, bingo, bingo, bingo. The ticker is B-N-G-O. So, um, people were sure that it was gonna go into ARC, and Simon Barnett spoke to it very specifically within the webinar. And essentially what he said is that right now, bio-nanogenomics, which does uh, optical mapping, which looks at chapters of the genome as opposed to individual words and sentences, plays a pretty good role. One, it helps with the workflow of, uh, you know, lab preparation, karyotyping, fish. Um, It helps with the lab preparation and it does a good job of detecting variants at a structural level within the genome. It does that well right now, and it can be productive and a good business in that area. However, what Pacific Biosciences does is they do long read sequencing, which is smaller than full chapters, but uh, so it's not as good as seeing structural variants right now. However, as hi-fi sequencing grows and gets better and gets paired with other instruments or with other technologies like artificial intelligence and things like Google's uh, deep variant calling, it should be able to do just as well what bi does. And so as the cost curve of hi-fi sequencing comes down, there's a very good chance that it eats into the business of bionanogenomics and their sapphire machine. So while they it is a good product right now, and it might be for a good time to come, it doesn't have the tailwind of the benefit of being on the sequencing curve and riding that cost curve down. So it has, it's likely—I wouldn't even say likely. There's a there's a good chance that uh, its business gets tamped into over time by Pacific Biosciences and other technologies. It's in a precarious spot, is the best way to describe it. So. Nothing against binary Genomics, and Simon Barnes even said, like, good company. This is, you know, n- nothing here, but um, I don't think that they're going to buy it. I would be shocked to see it come in. That's the, yep. that's the nuts and bolts of it.
0: That's great. I had no idea about the tailwinds and kind of the cost benefits from being on the sequencing curve or, or where um, Pacific is. Great. Uh, so I want to ask one question from the trading floor uh, to cap this off. Super appreciate you spending the time. This has been a blast. Um, so, from the trading floor, I think the gist of, of a lot of these questions are from uh, relatively new holders of ARC who may be in the red or maybe questioning, you know, I'm down X percent from my initial purchase. Um, how do I know, you know, if I should continue buying more ARC or when it's discounted to intrinsic value? Um, so, yeah, I, I think I want to get your thoughts on uh timing arc, whether it's through a dollar cost average strategy, whether it's through, you know, looking at things on Kathy's arc. Um, but any thoughts or advice on new investors in arc who are perhaps suffering a bit from the drawdown right now?
1: Yes. It's probably not the best advice that people want to hear. What most people want to hear is like, you should buy it here and you should sell it here. Like that's, that's what people want. And unfortunately can't give that. And I don't even know, like, you know, that certainly isn't the thing that I can do. So the thing to do, if you're a new investor, you're just getting into this is you should choose a time to buy every month. If you're going to continue to put money in things, um, or if you have conviction in something, you should uh, allocate a certain percentage to buying that every month or every six months or whatever your buy schedule is. And you just don't pay attention to the price things go up and down all the time if you want to make a special purchase and you feel confident enough to say oh this is down 25 percent. i'm going to allocate a little bit more here then go ahead and do it i don't think that there's a great no one has a good record of timing the bottom or timing the top so you should certainly i think it's worth continuing to invest in this stuff of course um You want to be on the front end of technology. Absolutely. So as a new investor, step lightly, walk, don't run, and just dollar cost average in. Yep. Buy on the dips if you feel comfortable doing that. Otherwise, you can go super steady. And on the 15th of the month, you buy $100 here or whatever it happens to be. Just um, don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Go with the tried and true methods
0: love it yeah set a calendar reminder something such that you don't even have to think about it you just buy all the way into the future uh phil this has been awesome such a blast everybody check out the website kathysark.com get involved in the trading floor get the email updates it's all worth it uh phil thanks so much for coming on the show hey ben appreciate it as always thanks for having me Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.